Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Psalms. That should be pretty easy to find. It's in, um, it's in the center of this big book. You follow in your copies as I read to you the entirety of Psalm 1. Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I'm introducing this morning a series on the book of Psalms, but as you know, there are 150 of those things, 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, and I thought, I can't do all 150 of those, and so I thought, well, let me see, what. how about, um, what if I did 10% of them? 10% would be 15, and uh, that, that seems doable, but basically what we're going to have is somewhere around 12 or 13, something like that, but we're going to take a look at the Psalms. Uh, in in the coming uh, few months. Now, you probably know that the book of Psalms is the worship book of Israel. This is the book that contains hymns and songs and prayers and confessions, all which are offered as expressions of praise to God. They are they are statements that cover the entire gamut of human emotion. Because what you have in here, by the way, it's not all written by David. I hope you know that. David wrote about 75 of these. He didn't write all 150. But uh, the people who write these things are real people who are wrestling with real issues before a real God. And consequently, what you get so often is a, is a, a glimpse into the, to the emotional and spiritual struggles that God's people are, are experiencing. And, and that's why so many people love this book of Psalms. Susie and I both became Christians on the same night, um, and the woman who preached the gospel that night was a woman by the name of Virginia, Virginia Schmidt. She was about 30 years our senior, and we both really grew to love Virginia Schmidt. But one day I was, um, I was in a conversation with Virginia, and, and I don't even know where this came from, but she asked me, she said, this was back in the 70s, back when communism was really threatening, but um, she says, if the communists took over, Jimmy, and, and they threw you in jail, and you were allowed to take only one book of the Bible into the jail with you, what one book of the Bible would you take? And I said, oh, well, I'd take Romans. I mean, that's, that's my book, you know, I'm a, I'm a budding young theologue, theolog, and I'm taking Romans. So I returned the question to her and said, Virginia, what would you take? She said, I'd take the book of the Psalms. I'm older now, and I hope a bit wiser. And I agree with Virginia. If I had one book to take along with me, it would be the book of the Psalms. Because it's the account of real people expressing 
real issues before a real God. And I, for one, appreciate that immensely. Psalm 1 is, of course, the introduction to the whole book. Um, It introduces us to the issue, the primary issue, uh, that every believer must uh, appreciate. And that is knowing God. That is, the primary issue of, of our spiritual life and experience is our knowledge of God. And Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 for a reason. Just like the first commandment is the first commandment for a reason, it's not there by accident. Psalm 1 is in the lead-off position for a reason. It's a, it's a gateway in, into the rest of the book of Psalms. It's, it's, it provides somewhat of a synopsis for the rest of the book. Most of the issues that you're going to wrestle with in the book of Psalms are really mentioned and contained in Psalm 1. In, in concentrated form, it's, it's, it's the opening book of the whole idea of my knowing God. And as I read it, I hope you saw this. Because it's a pretty simple psalm. You will notice that the issue, the one issue that the psalm mentions as the key activity, the key discipline of knowing God is meditation. A meditation that grows out of a love for and an interest in God and his word. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it did not say reading. It said meditation. A benediction, the the psalm opens with the word blessed. By the way, that word is not blessed. We don't say parked. It's blessed. But a benediction is pronounced on the man who not reads, but meditates. Meditates on the law of the Lord. You'll also notice in the psalm that the key distinction, the the, the primary distinction between believer and unbeliever is this activity he identifies as meditation. So what I want to do uh, in explaining this psalm, there are three key words. The first word is meditate, the second word is law, and the third word is fruit. And so what I want to do is organize my thoughts about around the, these questions. First of all, what is, what is it? That is, what is meditation? Secondly, what is its object? And thirdly, what is its result? What is it? What's its object, and what does it produce? What is its result? Okay, here we go. What is meditation? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's not transcendental meditation that we're talking about. Transcendental meditation is something where you spend all these uh, these hours focusing on something inside you. And you try to call up uh, great interest uh, and knowledge of self. 
You try to find the inner workings of your own being. That's transcendental meditation, and that has nothing to do with the kind of meditation the scriptures have in view. Meditation, guys, is a, um, it's a spiritual discipline of making God more real and more precious to our soul. It is, it is saturating ourselves in, in what this has to say. Uh, it's very similar to the way that you would marinate meat. So that the, the marination, the marinade, the, 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 the marinade will, will seep through all the cracks and the crevices and the nooks and the crannies of the meat. Well, that's what, that's what meditation does. It's a discipline where, where God is made more real and more precious to my soul. Now, the psalm gives us some illustrations of what it means. That is, what is, what is meditation? Because the psalm says that a meditator is like a tree. It says that in verse 3. He is like a tree. A meditator is like a tree planted by streams of water. A couple of notes. First of all, he didn't plant himself. He's planted. God planted him. And he planted him in a most advantageous spot. He planted him in um, by streams of water. Not by a stream, but by streams of water. Now, it's Jeremiah 17 that explains those advantages. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah 17, 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and it is and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit gang meditators are like trees and trees are planted by god in a most advantageous place they are planted next to close to above right next to not one stream but streams of living water and consequently, when it's bad heat outside or the drought is threatening, oh, this tree doesn't have to worry. Oh, no, no, no. Because, because, because of its root system that goes down and searches out the, the water supply that is right beneath it, hooks into that water supply, and then draws water up through its root system into the tree such that the tree is constantly bearing fruit with green leaves and all that uh, that accompanies health. Gang, a meditator is like a tree. It's it's a root system that we sink down into this book and out of it we draw up into the nature and the fiber of our souls that truth such that we're always producing green leaves. Gang, um, I'm not an agronomist, but I'll do my best. A tree, let's take a grapefruit tree. When I lived in Florida, I, I, I longed to raise grapefruit trees. But a, a grapefruit tree um, sends down its roots... It draws water from these streams up into the nature of the tree. And so, 
the nature of the tree plus water equals grapefruit. Now, that's the image that Psalm 1 is giving us. We take the nature of the new heart created by the Holy Spirit of God and draw up into it this and voila! Fruit. Fruit like godliness and purity and and, and honesty and humility. You, 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 you're planted by an enormous resource and as a result of a, of a root system that we sink down deep into this thing, we draw up great refreshment for our souls and it produces fruit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Do you know what the non-Christian world thinks about us? You know what they think about us? They think we're a bunch of hypocrites. They're no different than we are. You know what? They are often right. And I am here, ladies and gentlemen, to suggest to you that the reason that we are no different from them is because we do not meditate on this book day and night. It's not talking about reading it, ladies and gentlemen. It's talking about meditation. Let me give you one more example. And again, I'm not a veterinarian either. But um, one, of the, uh, one of the images that the commentaries all seem to use is that of a cow chewing its cud. You know what happens. You know, a, 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 a cow has more than one stomach. I don't know. He might have 40 for all I know. But he's got more than one. <clears throat> and so you see him walking around the field and he's, he's eating that grass. And he's, uh, he's just all day long. He's going, he's eating that grass. And then later on in the evening, he's lying down. And there he, there he's, there he lies. And he's going, hmm, Just constantly. What happens is he eats that grass. It goes down to one stomach. Then that grass gets regurgitated up and he chews on it. Just all night long he chews on it. That cow takes grass and he turns it into muscle that ultimately ends up over at Kroger that you bring to your house and put it on the grill and have a wonderful steak dinner. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have any spiritual muscle because what we do is read. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Mental acuity is not what is in view in Psalm 1. Oh, we Christians, we know a lot. But very frankly, that's why the world doesn't like us. Because that's all we have. We know a lot. Those are the guys that give us the bad reputation, ladies and gentlemen. Because we've never drawn this up into our spiritual DNA such that it produces life change. And ladies and gentlemen, you listen to me. Life change is not promised to reading this book. Life change is promised 
to meditators. There's a second word that that's important. And that is, look at it, it's, it's in verse um, 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. I, so the object of the object of our meditation is on the law of the Lord. Now, gang, why do you think that the psalmist said it like that? Why did the psalmist say he meditates on the law of the Lord? Why didn't he just say he meditates on the Bible? Or he meditates on God's word? Or he meditates on truth that's contained in, in this book? Why did he say it like that? Why does he use the word he meditates on law? Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. This is the most unappreciated portion of this psalm and perhaps the most hated. But the reason that he uses the word law is because the Bible, this book, this object of our meditation must be law to me. What I am saying when I come to this book is that I want you, God, to tell me the right way to live and the right way to think. I believe that the wisdom that's in here trumps any so-called wisdom that I have or others might have. I get my definitions from here, not from my biology teacher at Houston High School. My definitions come from here. Gang, if there is any passion that the 21st century postmodern man has, it is a passion for self-rule. Don't you tell me what to do. I am entitled to my autonomy. Gang, my relationship to God or our relationship to God is one where he has authority over me and not the other way around. I come to this book with the full intention of yielding to what it says. Well, I don't like this part over here, and I'm not going to... That's not the point! The point is, this is law to me. I, 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 don't, get the, I don't get permission to define things as I see them. I define things as it grows, as I deal with them growing out of this book. I take my soul by the scruff of its neck and I say to it, yield. Yield to this book. I meditate. I meditate on law. Not opinion. Not spiritual literature. I meditate on law. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't care one whit what you think about abortion. 
want to know what this book has to say about it. I don't care one whit what you think about homosexual marriage. I want to know what this book says about it. I don't care one whit whether the God of the postmodern man loves me or the God of the liberal or the God of the philosopher or the God of the humanist. I don't care one whit whether he loves me. But I'm very concerned. Does this God love me? You know, guys, postmodern 21st century man hates absolutes, absolute truth. And, and he has convinced a portion of the church to go along with him. If you've heard of the emerging church movement or the emergent village, and ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is unfortunate. It's a, it's a terrible assault. But guys, let me tell you the other bad part about that. Tell me this. Once you have undercut this book, once you have concluded that it has no authority over you, where are you going to go when life begins to fall apart? And it will. To where will you turn? When you have already discredited this book. Okay, I want to read you something out of Leviticus 22. Don't turn, but Leviticus 20, Leviticus is a hard book to read because it contains all these things about this is what you should do, this is what you should not do. You know, just this is what, this is how I expect Israel to live. And at the end of one of those sections, God says this. Listen to this, guys. This is, He says, So, you shall keep my commandments and do them. Colon. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Did you get that? Gang, do you know what is the ultimate reason why you and I are to obey? I am the Lord. Based on who I am and based on what I have done, obey me. I am the Lord. That is the only reason, that is the only rational basis for any ethic, for any morality. Reject this one and you've got none. 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 And you end up with a culture that has gone absolutely mad in its insistence upon self-rule. Ladies and gentlemen, we come to this book and we view it as law. Third word and we're done. It has to do with fruit. Now, guys, imagine if you can, in your mind's eye, a a, um, a citrus grove. We're back to grapefruits. Um, there's a citrus grove and there's two grapefruit trees standing side by side. One of those grapefruit trees is loaded down with grapefruit. The other one doesn't have any grapefruit on it. And just a couple of leaves. 
Now, what would you conclude about those two grapefruit trees? Let me help you. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, the fruit doesn't give life to the tree. The fruit simply reveals which of those two trees is alive and which one of those trees are dead. The fruit is simply an outward sign of inward life and health. We're told in verse 3 that this meditator yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You see, guys, uh, just like the grapefruit reveal the health of the tree or the life of the tree, so too in the life of the Christian, fruit bearing is, is, is not meritorious. It earns us nothing. Fruit bearing is simply an outcome of inward health and inward life. No fruit means that you're not alive, or at least that you're very, very sick. Gang, um, fruit is expected. All Christians bear fruit. But for some of us, the, the fruit is so meager. Why is that? Here's your answer. The psalm gives you the answer. The reason why there is so little difference between us and the non-Christian world is the absence of drawing God's word as law up into the fiber of our soul. That's what this psalm says. Fruit is expected, and it increases. It increases year after year, and it includes oftentimes periods of pruning. If you're any kind of gardener, you know that pruning is designed so there can be more fruit. As I draw truth up into me, I am being changed. And guys, the, the, the changes are, some of the changes are even mentioned in the psalm. Um, for instance, in verse 1a, uh, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He's very careful about who he listens to. Uh, verse 1b, he says uh, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He, he watches where he goes. And um, 1C, it says, and he, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He's, he's very careful about who he spends time with. Because as I draw the truth of this book up into my spiritual life, I can't stand. To be in places where God and His Word are maligned. All 
Now let me close with three lessons from the psalm. First of all, my brother and sister in Christ, it is not enough to avoid the scoffer and race over and hide in our holy huddles. Do you meditate on God's Word? I didn't ask if you read it. I asked if you meditated on God's Word. Nothing. Nothing can be trusted where my interest in and knowledge of God's Word is not central. Blessing is attached not to reading, not to evangelism, not to giving, not to teaching. Blessing is attached to meditation on God's Word. It provides a stability. I'm not blown about by winds. I'm, I'm anchored. Do you meditate on this book? As law. Secondly, verse 4 says, The wicked are not so. That is, to not love God's law is the essential nature of the wicked. He, he's unstable in all his ways, and the psalm goes on to point out that he will perish. It appears from this psalm that the key distinction between the wicked and the righteous, you see, that's what the psalm is doing. It is comparing the wicked and the righteous. And the key distinction is meditation on God's Word. One final thing. There was somebody else who started his ministry with the word blessed. It was Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, he begins his, his public ministry by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He also, in, later on in the Gospel of John, says that he's the one that's going to give rivers of living water that's going to gush out of our souls. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is this. When you sink roots down into the truth of this book, what you're going to find that they're attaching to is Jesus Christ. He will become all the more all the more lovely, all the more, we become all the more willing to, to follow and do, not because it earns us anything, but because He has become the beauty of our souls. Gang, there's a difference between Jesus being useful to us and Jesus being beautiful to us. He becomes beautiful as we meditate on His law day and night. 
Our Father, I do pray that you will speak to your people from, from this glorious book that they have in their laps. And thank you that they are there. Thank you that you have given us such resources that we can um, have one of these things in, in our laps um, and on our shelves. Uh, the whole world can't say that, but we can, and we're grateful. I pray that you will demonstrate to your people the great urgency that is now ours to know you in all of your beauty, in all of your perfections, in all of your life-giving nature. Would you, would you reveal yourself to us, O oh God, as we determine that there is going to be roots sunk down deep into those waters of refreshment. We uh, pray it, of course, in Jesus' name.